Hey everybody, good to see you all. And a couple of things uh, this morning, uh, briefly, before we start in with the, uh, the Dogen uh, text that we're going to be looking at uh, during the talks, both this morning and this afternoon. First of all, I found it interesting that uh, this morning when I uh, open up the paper to look at over my uh, first cup of coffee, the uh, front page article uh, is titled, Has Stress Boxed You Into a Corner? And then right below that, it has advice, exercising, connecting with others, and meditation can help you cope with pandemic anxiety. <laughs> so I started my day getting my uh, walk in at the park at about six, six o'clock. So I got my exercise. I've done uh, an hour's worth of meditation already. And now I'm connecting with others. So I got all the bases covered here. <laughs> And secondly, and uh, more germane in, in a way that you'll see shortly to, uh, to uh, what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, a couple of you are already aware of this, but uh, I haven't really put it out there yet. But I, I thought I would uh, make the first announcement uh, this morning. While it's not official yet, I did have a conversation with Mike Newhall earlier in the week and uh, it looks it appears likely that we will uh, be joining them for Denkaway as usual only in this manner via Zoom. So we'll be able to do uh, basically a week-long session and uh, We'll figure out some of the scheduling wrinkles, you know, in terms of three hours time difference. Uh, actually, when we're accustomed to starting at 8.30, they could, they could work with, that's 5.30 their time, and that's when we'd normally be starting the day. Uh, the, the challenge would come at the end of the day, because they're usually finishing up just before 9 o'clock, and that's about midnight our time. So. We'll, we'll work through a few of those little things, but otherwise uh, that looks like it'll fall into place. And what makes it relevant to what we're working on today is, the, and this was Mike's suggestion, not mine, but I was fully on board with it uh, right away. Uh, he was thinking that for a, uh, a study topic we might do Dogen's Genjo Koan, which was actually, as you'll see in my opening comments uh, about uh, the text we're looking at, the Maka Hanya Haramitsu. Uh, this text we're going to talk about preceded Genjo Koan by a matter of months. So they're kind of companion works. And uh, I think you can make a, a very good case that among Dogen's writings, these two pieces uh, are, are very important parts of the foundation that he was laying for his overall body of work. So it would be kind of neat to be able to cover this today. And I expect it's going to, uh, there's going to be some overflow here, which means over the course of the next Sunday or two, we'll probably continue to look at this. It's not that long by page count as far as Dogen fascicles go, but by uh, the depth of the material to talk about, it's, uh, it's one of the heavier pieces. So we'll, we'll try to give it all the time and attention that, uh, that it deserves, which, which is considerable. So that's uh, what I, I wanted to open with. And uh, then 
before we, we really get into the text itself, as I've been doing with the other uh, Dogen fascicles that we've looked at on Sunday morning, and we've looked at two over the course of the past month or two, uh, both early works, but not as early as this one. So in a sense, we're kind of traveling back in time within the early period of Dogen's teachings. Uh, the first uh, fascicle that we looked at was dates from 1241. And uh, he had not yet made the move to Eheji at that point. Uh, and that was awesome presence of active Buddhas. And then from there, we, we traveled back in time a couple of years to one of his uh, earlier pieces, uh, which was uh, mind it's, itself, the mind here and now is Buddha. And that was from 1239. So today's piece that we're going to look at dates from 1233. It's just six years after his return from his uh, four years in China. And to put that in the context of the two pieces of his that preceded this one, this is his third uh, writing. The first one was uh, written immediately upon his return to Japan in 1227. We know it from, uh, from its presence in our chant book. It's Fukan Zazengi. So his universal recommendation for the practice of Zazen. And then four years after that, in 1231, he wrote Bendawa, or The Wholehearted Way, which we know, again, from a segment of that text that's, that's uh, in our chant book, Jijuyu Zamai. So those are the two works that preceded uh, the Makahanya Haramitsu. And that's what uh, we're going to dive in now. And a text that, uh, that I've, I've used as a principal resource for, for what I'm going to be teaching today is uh, this one. Deepest Practice, Deepest Wisdom, Three Fascicles from Shobo Genzo with commentaries. Uh, and not all of them uh, feature Uchiyama's commentary, uh, but this one does, the one we're going to be looking at. So some of the commentary that I'm going to reference is Uchiyama. And then at the end of this book, there are a couple of like appendices that, that are added. And one of those is by Shahaku, uh, with just a few notes on the Makahanya Haramitsu. So this, I mean, to my mind, any, any rich commentary on Dogen's writings uh, that are available or are generally worth picking up, and this one certainly, uh, falls into that category. The other two uh, fascicles that are covered in here are Uji, being time, which we've looked at through Katagiri's uh, uh, series of talks on that, and then also uh, refraining from evil, the first of the three pure precepts. So that's one that I had intended for us uh, to eventually look at anyway. So uh, don't have a time frame in my mind as to, as to when that might happen, but, uh, but stay tuned. We'll, we'll, we'll move on to that at some point, probably by before the end of this year. All right, so we've, we've got it placed now within the context of his, uh, of his early writings being the third text he authored. Uh, in 1233, this is kind of an important year for Dogen because he's been back from China for six years. 
he he was he's been based throughout this period of time from his birth he was born in kyoto uh when he was still a kid and he went off to the tendai temple uh mount on mount hiai uh that was in kyoto and the temple that he uh, uh, started at Koshoji, uh, that took place in 1233, and that's still located. He's in Kyoto. So he would end up spending about 10 years here before making the move to Eheji. So actually, this talk was, was given. The text was written for the first summer practice period at Koshoji during that summer of 1233. Just kind of put it in a little more context uh, in terms of his life and his teachings. So he's finally got his place, and this is the first teaching presents during their first practice period there. So it's just a way of highlighting, this is an important work we're gonna be looking at here. And as the title of the fascicle kind of gives it away, uh, this is about the Prajnaparamita literature, the perfection of wisdom. And clearly uh, it's about the Heart Sutra, in fact, the beginning of this fascicle, as we'll see, is uh, just a direct reference and a slight rephrasing from the Heart Sutra. But it's also referencing the Diamond Sutra, which we just, uh, when, once I, uh, I thought about it, it wasn't that long ago that we were uh, finishing up our, our work on that. It was back in March, a mere four months ago. So that I know is still fresh in everybody's mind. And so this, this work uh, can be seen as uh, kind of his way of connecting the teachings he's giving in Japan about the, the foundational aspect of the practice of Zazen making that connection to the Prajnaparamita literature, especially the Heart Sutra, that what he's teaching is, is just a natural uh, outgrowth of this, the, the Mahayana uh, teachings as they're expressed in the Prajnaparamita literature in ways that hopefully will become clear as we go through uh, the two talks and discussions today. Uh, so with that, I'd like to uh, just kind of jump in. Oops, get to the first page. And a lot of what I'm going to talk about this morning, it's been said that Dogen fascicles, uh, generally the heart of it is in the opening sentences. And then everything else is just kind of a natural uh, uh, further elaboration on, on the, what, what gets presented early on. Here, you can actually make a case that the first word in the title kind of cracks this thing open. So what we're gonna look at is maka, but I'll use, because we're more familiar with the Sanskrit, the original Sanskrit rendering of that, which is maha. It's the great, the maha prajna paramita, the mahayana, the great vehicle, the great, uh, perfection of wisdom. Maha. And 
maha the the term itself as it's used here is uh, attempting through one word to express the buddha dharma as a whole the whole of the teachings the whole of the practice everything through maha and uchiyama in his commentary says in buddha dharma maha is a noun that indicates the whole of buddha dharma itself and that's uh, certainly uh one way of seeing it in a helpful way but of course in uh in zen we uh, in our work uh, with the earlier uh, fascicle, we talked about uh, the awesome presence of active Buddhas, which pointed to uh, the, the activity, the verb, the verb quality of, of the Dharma, uh, its action. And to see Bahaf would just kind of shift our view from the noun that Uchiyama lays out in front of us to seeing it as an active practice. That's where maha is, is sprouted forth from. So it's not an object so much, although it has some object-like qualities. But as we dig a little further into this, we'll enter into the non-duality that uh, that this fascicle is is about, and it's what Maha kind of plunges us into. It's the non-discriminating mind. Until we enter into that mind, we're not in, or we're not riding the Mahayana vehicle. Let's put it that way. Uh, it's you know it's still limited because we're discriminating so this maha and this is true whether we take it as a noun or a verb it's prior to making distinctions it's prior to our discriminating mind prior to comparisons so maha great you know we hear that and we immediately well that's in contrast to not so great small mahayana we think hinayana that's that's where mahayana comes from right but of course uh it early on when when we had these uh struggles to to assume uh, some sort of a superior position uh, in the Dharma realm, the Mahayana, the Hinayana. Uh, but ultimately, uh, there was a more enlightened view of that that kind of came forth that said, no, that's not what Maha is about. Maha is, is beyond those kinds of distinctions. It, that's not Maha. So that's an important point to keep in mind. You know, the term itself can certainly uh, be seen within the, uh, the relative world where it's subject to all of these comparisons. But if we really enter into the Mahayana, the Mahaprajna, we're not in that realm. We're, we're prior to discriminating mind. And that's important. And that's gonna be a prevailing theme uh, throughout this fascicle. And then uh, Uchiyama brings mind to play into this. And that, you know, I found helpful in terms of linkages for, for those of us that were uh, looking at his fascicle 
uh, a few weeks back, mind here and now is Buddha. So Dogen, when Dogen speaks of mind, it's not from the standpoint of uh, Buddhist psychology. You know, a lot of Buddhist teachings look at mind in that fashion. The Abhidharma, even the Yogacara, when, when they talk about mind, you know, the Yogacara's got in mind the, uh, the eight consciousnesses up to and including the storehouse consciousness, the Alaya Vishnana. Mind, as Dogen typically uses it, uh, is not about that. It's more in the same vein as mind here and now is Buddha. It's mind as, as life. It's, it's mind as the way. Ordinary mind is the way. So it also is prior to the act of comparisons and discriminations. Now, one of the beautiful things about bringing mind into this is I think it's a little easier for us to see that when we do begin, uh, which we always do, uh, when we do be begin making our comparisons and discriminations, we, we can see that, yeah, mind is doing that. But see, our tendency is to limit mind to that function. And thereby, we begin to see, see it as, as a more universal phenomenon, that that is the way things are. And when we do that, it's blocking us, it's precluding us from being able to return to the source, to be able to access uh, maha prior to discrimination, prior to making these comparisons, to differentiating between this and that and comparing this and that. So, when we talk about mind as life, it's life that includes all beings. So there's always this, this context for Dogen. If he's talking about Buddha nature, he's talking about all beings. So that's why he could take a traditional teaching from the, uh, the Nirvana Sutra, all beings have Buddha nature, and really radically reinterpret that to all beings are Buddha nature. That's what he's getting at. Buddha nature is all beings. That e equivalence goes both ways. All beings are Buddha nature. Buddha nature is all beings. There's nothing excluded. Maha. We're back to Maha. And we're always, obviously, in Maha, even when we're right in the heart of our discriminating mind. We can have the awareness that even in the midst of our discriminations, that we're always in Maha. And through that realization, we're going to be uh, uh, working our way through this, comes the vital thing about the opening and looking at the five aggregates. The five aggregate, aggregates are reality. So when we talk, as, as we do in the Heart Sutra, about the emptiness of the five aggregates, we're not saying that, that they don't exist. The five aggregates are Maha Prajna Paramita. What's being taught is not to cling to them. 
that's to be able to see them and to even be able to, to distinguish between them and within them to be able to distinguish, but not get caught by that, not to cling. That's, in a nutshell, Dogen's teachings, always. And that's why Zazen is getting to the heart of it. It's because that's what we do. And there's a beautiful poem that comes later on in this fascicle that actually is not uh, uh, Dogen's poem. It's a poem uh, from his teacher in China, Ru Jing. And we'll get, I'll make sure we get to that this afternoon because uh, even if we have to jump ahead a bit, uh, we'll jump back again and, during future talks on this. But this poem, and uh, let me read it to you, and I'll read it using the translation that, uh, that I had. Uh, included in my email on Monday, which is different from the translation in the, uh, the Uchiyama book. The whole body is a mouth hung in space. It doesn't matter from where the wind blows, north, south, east, west. The wind bell always speaks of perfect knowing. Ring, ring. Do zazen, try doing zazen with this poem in mind. Doing zazen is the whole body as a mouth hung in space. And the wind blowing, thoughts arising from all directions. The wind bell always speaks of perfect knowing. Because Maha, we're not trapped, we're not caught up, we're not clinging. This opening image of the whole body as a mouth hung in space helps to create that rich imagery. We don't have anything that can is capable of the task of hanging on or grasping to anything. It's just this open mouth, hanging in open space. And the winds are blowing through. And to be able to greet your thoughts as they come up, ring, 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 ring. to see them in their maha nature before we discriminate and make our distinctions and attach and evaluate and so on and so forth. This is how we create the openness for wisdom to come forth. Until then, you know, we're just uh, basically, uh, there was the ancient uh, field of study called rhetoric. I mean, we're just you know, trying to build uh, our, a stronger case for anything we're, we're, we're encountering to pre present ourselves in the best possible light, to win arguments, to have our way. And that was one of the most important subjects that, uh, that in the Greek world and uh, throughout the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance. It's pretty important stuff to, to study. So that's not Maha, obviously. 
Baha, I think, can be uh, uh, helpfully distinguished from that kind of an approach. So mind, come back to that, mind now can be understood as the self that is one with all beings which is another way of saying the self that is no self. It's one with all beings. That's Maha. Since we're on this path now of making some comparisons to Western thought, compare that to uh, kind of the father of, of modern Western philosophy, Rene Descartes. And the I think, therefore I am. That's one way of viewing mind. And of course, that gave birth to what became known as Cartesian dualism, mind, body. So he was going at a 180 degree angle from what this teaching is setting forth for us. Completely opposite direction. And that's something I guess we should keep in mind on Thursday nights as we look at eco-dharma and where that Cartesian worldview has gotten us and then bring our maha minds to look at to, to, uh, to look ahead to the the next chapter in Loy's book chapter six is what what should we do what should we do and the important thing before we we uh, move into that is to understand where we are and how we got there. So I always like to to uh, kind of make the big circle, the big web of connectedness, with whatever we're we're studying with other teachings that get presented here, because they are all interconnected. I, I really truly hope that everybody uh, can have that awareness as, as we go through these various teachings that we, uh, we plow through. That it really is one, one Dharma. They're just different approaches to it. So eco-Dharma, is Makahanya Haramitsu and vice versa. And I do think that David Lloyd does a nice job in his book of, uh, without uh, saying it in that direct of a way, uh, of basically getting that point across. So to, to come then to see this, this maha as the reality of life itself, interdependence, no self, the emptiness of all things, the reality of life, or we could call it the heart of life itself. And it's a heart with heart because Avalokiteshvara is the one who is conveying the teachings of the Heart Sutra, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. And that's important to keep in mind too. Also harkens back to this notion of, of active maha, 
rather than maha as just seen as a noun, but it's important that we keep in mind, no, it's actually a verb, maybe more importantly than seeing it as a noun. And that's the connection with Avalokiteshvara. And then, because this kind of connects with so many other teachings of Dogen, to see this wondrous Dharma, which is the term that gets used, which is the awesome presence from the awesome presence of active Buddhas, his fascicle that we looked at. The awesome presence is this seeing this wondrous Dharma and feeling the deep gratitude moment by moment for this wondrous Dharma, which is suddenly present. And that this wondrous Dharma has been transmitted only from Buddha to Buddha, another fascicle of Dogen's, Yui Butsu Yo Butsu, only Buddhas and Buddhas, without deviation. Even though there's nothing to transmit except this Maha, everything gets transmitted but there's nothing to transmit. And it has, I, I, I love this expression, it has as its criterion to Juyu Zanma, which is the samadhi of freely receiving and functioning. Our life, our life as liberated beings. It's Jujuyu Zamai. Self-actualizing, self-realizing. So that's, and to call it a criterion is kind of like calling it a standard, which points to, uh, to Sandokai, certainly a poem that uh, Dogen was very, very familiar with. And so it's a criterion that's no criterion, a standard that's no standard. It's okay to have standards, but don't attach to them. Sounds like uh, our, our teachings Again, to keep building the web of teachings we look at, it's our teachings on the precepts by way of Reb Anderson's being upright. To see precepts, morality as standards that are, that are no standards, so there's nothing to cling to, to attach to. But, yeah, that, and, and it also points to the middle way so it's not, we, we think uh, a normal response because we're, we're not in the maha is that, well, if, if you're making a statement, there are no standards, then, uh, then it's utter chaos, anything goes. Well, that's not true at all. That's not being in maha because being in maha is mind as all beings. That's where Avalokiteshvara comes in. Compassion. If we're mind as all beings, you know, compassion, loving kindness, equanimity, these all come into play. That's part of our active presence, our practice. But we're not entering it as these rigid, righteous, dogmatic beings. We enter it from the openness that, that we get so comfortable and familiar with through entering this realm of Maha. 
So it doesn't send us off into a nihilistic realm. That's important to see. Because that's one of the reasons why our mind will throw up red flags. And that's probably a good thing because that's uh, uh, a problem to end up in that mind, mindset, worldview. That's, that's not it. So one other point that I wanted to get across here kind of dovetails with another statement of Uchiyama's where he says, the wonderful Dharma is called Maha here. All Buddhas and Bodhisattvas ride on this vehicle of Maha. That, for me, and maybe it's uh, somewhat triggered by, I, I think I've mentioned, maybe it was Thursday, about uh, uh, going through one of these uh, great courses, classes, online uh, on oceanography but all of a sudden and since the water and the wave is is a standard metaphor in buddhism uh, to see this practice is kind of like surfing and to see this wondrous dharma this awesome presence as being you know on the very edge of this wave that, that's arising out of the water, out of the maha, and to kind of be riding these waves, and to have that as as just a metaphorical way of seeing our lives in the wondrous dharma, in the maha, in the boundless, because you know is that metaphor. Uh, so effectively puts it, you know, we are the water and the wave. And if we take that wave analogy, because uh, we, we fine-tune it even more to this very moment, here and now, it's kind of like putting us out on the very leading edge of that wave right now. And that's where a surfer is at. Very aware of both what's right there in front of them and the whole of, of that reality, Maha. So all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas ride on this vehicle of Maha. And even if we <coughs> are done surfing for the day and we pack our surfboard away and, and head back home, you know, whatever we're doing, we're always riding on this vehicle of Maha. So. It's not, it's not unique to any particular activity we're always doing. Go home and chop up some vegetables, and boil some rice to make something for dinner, and you're riding the vehicle of Maha. Everything, everything we do. It's impossible to get off of that vehicle. It's what sustains us come back to eco-dharma. That's what David Loy's trying to say. We, we treat things as these individual objects that we can possess, manipulate, control for our advantage. But actually, we're, we're and he doesn't use this language, but he's saying it. I mean, we're riding the vehicle of Maha, of all beings, because that is our nature. That's the nature of all things. 
So this is where dukkha arises when we aren't fully aware of our true nature, of our maha nature. So we've spent a good chunk of, of the time that I was going to spend this morning talking, just looking at Maha, basically, once we got a few preliminaries out of the way. I, I do want to advance at least a little bit to Prajna. We have to cover more than one word, right? <laughs> Even by the standards we've set. <laughs> That'd be just terrible. But we've we've kind of set the stage now for introducing prajna and having that uh, maybe uh, enter into this picture with a bit more clarity now. To see the function of maha as prajna, which is what we call the function of maha. The function is, of course, the activity, the practice. That's prajna. So the maha prajna, we're just it's uh, talking about the same thing. Of course, it's maha if it's prajna. Of course, it's prajna if it's coming from Maha. And it always is coming from Maha, so it comes back to how do we see it? Are we, do we have any clarity about that? Because our normal way of going through life is not much connection to it. So we start from early in the day and we go on. The life of, uh, of discriminating mind and, and we get very caught up in it. And we're attaching, we're pushing away. And those are the forces of our life. And never following Thich Nhat Hanh's advice about just hitting the pause button every once in a while and breathing in deeply. Like that wind bell. Let the winds enter from all the directions. We don't, we're not trying to uh, evaluate what are they? Where is it coming from? Just breathe in, breathe out. Ring, ring, ring. That's why you know, he teaches that as a very therapeutic way to allow us to re-engage then with the world, with maybe at least uh, an element of prajna, because we've actually stopped and made that connection. And that, of course, is what we're doing today. Well, we do several times every week, and of course, everybody has their own uh, individual practice <coughs> to do it. So there are all these practices that are just about uh, allowing us to enter into this Maha space, to further deepen the realization that that's the space we're always in. that all of our discriminations are there too. So we're never away from them. 
And that's why there's no uh, contradiction between those two. We can actually do things in the world. It's not an either or proposition. You're always in Maha. But then the question becomes, do you want to deal with the particularities of life from that awareness, understanding, realization? Or do you want to just deal with them through this process, process we're so accustomed to of basing it on our attachments and our aversions? not giving too much thought to any of So, and then I guess a good point to, to close on here with my comments is that uh, if the function of Maha is called prajna, then it's also kind of directing us to the, the connection with the practice of zaza. Maha, prajna, zaza. There's no difference between any of those. I think it was uh, Shahaku who, uh, who expressed so eloquently just the, the basics of zazen is just uh, sitting in upright posture, eyes open, breathing deeply into the abdomen. That's it. And be aware of what's coming up in your mind. Four, four steps. That's all. The windmill. The windmill, the windmill that has the awareness, the sentience. Be aware of what's blowing through. But not attaching to any of it. Letting it blow through. And to understand our strong propensity. You know, if it's something lovely coming through, we want to hang on to it. See that. Be aware of it and let that go. That's part of the Maha realm. There will be beautiful things that come through. There will be things that aren't so beautiful. There will be painful things, sad things. Just be the wind bell with the understanding of Maha that includes all beings. And that really gets to the heart of it. That's the heart of the Heart Sutra and why it's presented by Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. So it's all beings with our whole body responding to all beings. And we can only do that to the extent that we can let go of the five aggregates. They're still there, they, they form our reality. But by letting them go, we become the window. And that doesn't mean we consign ourselves to the realm of non-sentience. Oh, you're just a, just a 
just a, a piece of, of metal. No. There's a sentient being can be a window. That strikes me as a worthwhile koan to work through. Sentience of windbells. That was another topic Dogen uh, would circle back to frequently about sentience of beings. So we can get really caught up by these distinctions. That's why we uh, might have a resistance to the wind bell as a model for practice. Because we we're sentient and the wind bell isn't. And for us, that is a big difference. So we're talking about entering into a realm where we let all those differences go. And we can be the wind bell, just like from uh, last month, talk from uh, from branching streams flow into darkness being the bird chirping let it into your heart your heart mind you don't get caught up in saying well it's just a bird I'm something far greater Baha in that comparative sense I am Maha. I have much greater potential. See? It's deeply ingrained and it finds its way out. So letting go is about humility too. They're part and parcel. So in Christianity, when they preach humility, they're really entering into our, our realm and vice versa. You know, it's, it's a, a lot of commonality there. It's important. So that's probably a good place to, to drop off. And I'll still have a little bit to talk about this afternoon, as well as engage any uh, any further uh, things that might come up for you uh, between now and then. But in the meantime, we do, I did want to make sure we allowed some time for anything that's coming up right, right here and now in the midst of all this wondrous dharma. Thank you, Dean. Yeah. I uh, just um, thought it was a beautiful description of, of emptiness and of the energy of, uh, of living our lives within that, uh, that, that um, framework or understanding, you know, that openness. Um, so I appreciate your sharing that. Um, and describing it so beautifully. Thank you. Uh, 
I, I had something early on come up regarding um, a correlation or uh, with what's going on in the country mm -hmm. uh, regarding the um, the uh, the recent um, protests and marches regarding Black Lives Matter and um, just something you were talking about early on about the just going into depth about the whole and the greater wisdom and uh, and and so I I don't know it just came up about how how much we as the country and a world have been participating in the the dualistic mind the discriminations the comparisons um, and how maybe <clears throat> the, um, what what it says in the constitution about all men are created weak all men and women I, I think it only said men. <laughs> it only says men. <laughs> well, men, I add women. <laughs> all, all, basically, you know, all beings are created equal. Yeah. Is kind of what they were getting at, I think, you know. So, yeah. I don't know, I was just reflecting on the comparison. Oh, yeah. Of our constitution and, you, you know, where things are kind of the trajectory or the direction of where things are headed towards this um, maha of, of you know, non-discrimination. So, um, anyhow, I just thought that was interesting that that just came up. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there are some who uh, who kind of uh, see uh, see us moving in an evolutionary Dharma way in terms of how uh, deeper understanding uh, does seem to be uh, at work. Uh, and that, you know, I mean, that's that's one uh, view of it. Uh, uh, makes many of us uh, take heart and, and, and derive some satisfaction from from thinking along those lines. But again, not to get caught up by it. Uh, kind of points back to comments I made a few weeks ago on a Thursday night about uh, about progress. This notion that oh, we're we're just naturally on this path of progress, and that yeah, you know. That's that wig, wiggish uh, theory of history, and that's problematic. You know, be be careful there. But uh, but yeah, I I I mean, I agree. Obviously, uh, not not ready to get get out on the streets and s start singing about the dawning of the age of Aquarius. <laughs> 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 there, there are some positive things going on, no question. <laughs> and we're just again this Avalokiteshvara, which I didn't didn't uh, uh, reference, and I, and that's my my fault because it's important to to recognize. Hopefully, everybody does anyway. I don't even need to mention it. But Avalokiteshvara is within each and every one of us. It's it's just like the Buddha. You know, the Avalokiteshvara that you meet on the street. You have to kill her. It's, it's, and the, the point being that it's within us. Each and every one of us is where Avalokiteshvara resides. So we need to bring that forth from our realization of Baha nature, Buddha nature, and, uh, and be that force for for healing and peace in the world in everything 
as we're riding that crest of the wave, as, as we're doing our, our surfing thing every day. Uh, that we're, we're Avalokiteshvara uh, in the garb of a surfer now to really create some rich images. Those, those are the, the statues that we need to be creating and putting on altars now, right? <laughs> All right, well, maybe we'll go ahead and close out now so we can get a couple of good sittings in before lunch and then uh, start the afternoon at 1.20 with a 